Good morning and welcome to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. Uh, I hope you're having a lovely morning. Here in the studio, we are aiming to be the very best, the best there ever was. That's right. <laughs> we are talking the science of Pokemon Go today. Um, you might not believe me when I say there is science involved in this phenomenon that's sweeping Canberra and also the world, I guess. Uh, but that's what we're going to unpack today. So my name's Eleanor. My highest CP Pokemon at the moment is, I think, a 687 Rhydon that I caught at mm-hmm. Circular Key. So that was yeah. that was a good one. Uh, who else we got in the studio? Um, my name is Jason, and my highest Pokemon is a CP 1154 Golduck, which I toiled away evolving all the way from Psyduck. Yeah, I was <laughs> I was kind of gutted to hear every you. morning in the walk into uni. Yep. catching that Psyduck. Yep, a Psyduck on the way to uni every day keeps the doctor away. <laughs> Probably quite literally, actually. Probably literally. And, and my name's Sian, and my highest Pokemon is a CP684 Pinsir, but Ooh. I'm also very proud of a CP603 Kangaskhan I found in Adelaide. Wow, okay. okay. So there's, I mean, we're already getting into some pretty deep stuff we're here. Trip to Adelaide after this. Oh, yeah. We're going to be straight on a plane, I guess, is yeah. the best way to do that. Driving might be... Might take a little while yeah. to get there. So, I mean... I'm going to assume a lot of people listening to this know what Pokemon Go is, but there's every chance that you don't have a smartphone or don't care that Pokemon exists, which is completely fine. Jason, what is Pokemon Go? What have people been talking about? Yeah, Pokemon Go is kind of this augmented reality game, which I'll explain is based on a cartoon, like an anime from years and years ago it started, where you could have this this reality where there were all these monsters around the world and people could catch them in balls and battle them and grow them and they became friends. Wow. And it, when it, was, it was on a Game Boy platform and Nintendo games and stuff like that for a while. And now, you know, in smartphones, we can get these cool games. And the idea is that basically it taps into GPS and this augmented reality, which kind of overlays a digital world on ours. And you can walk around your city and you can explore and catch these actual Pokemon in balls and have gems and battle them. And hopefully in the future, we can trade them with each other. Oh, wow. Like in the games. That'd I mean, it's dream. like if you've seen any young people or, or people of any age um, wandering around with their faces glued to their phones more than normal, um, it's probably <laughs> because they're playing this game. So as Jason said, it's this, you know, augmented reality. So we, we map this digital world onto existing features. So for example, I'm pretty sure that um, there's a pokey stop, uh, yeah. kind of, there's a ton in Civic. So if you're wandering around, I think the Griffin Center was one, but. My... It's almost any landmark, like pieces of art, like street art are landmarks. And I mean, I'm finding street art pieces that I haven't seen before, which is pretty exciting, actually. Yeah. Have you found any cool sort of art or events or things that you wouldn't have seen normally? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff around my house that I didn't actually realize existed. And <laughs> my housemate went for a walk to find some um, and find some focus stops. And she found like a little community library in a fridge along a path that she was like, that's so cool. Where, I, where was that? And yeah, that's awesome. So it's a like, really great way to kind of discover your own city as well, I that's, guess. That's definitely what I've been finding is it's been yeah. it's been really educational about a city that I've kind of lived in for close to 15 years and I'm seeing things and seeing parts of it that I wouldn't normally have seen. Um, But we're a science show here, so we're going to talk about the science behind Pokemon Go. Uh, And I think that there are kind of these three um, main threads that run through Pokemon Go. And I think any hardcore player will be familiar with the first, well, well, all of them. Um, 
the first thing I want to talk about is the fact that GPS exists and allows us to actually position ourselves on a map and then run around the streets of Canberra and see our little avatar do the same thing. Um, that's kind of mind-blowing. Uh, and there's some really, really cool physics involved in that. There's actually a whole lot of um, relativity involved in maintaining GPS systems. So we're going to talk about that for a bit. The other thing that I think has been playing on people's minds a lot is how do you save enough battery to get you through a whole Pokemon walk? Batteries are, I guess, something we kind of take for granted these days. Yeah. But they're, they're chemical systems. Yeah, and you see now... Actually, on the side of that, the economic boom must be of people buying those battery packs to supplement their phone's battery power. Yeah, pretty Isn't much. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk about batteries, and then we're going to talk about the actual sort of applications of citizen science and animal monitoring. So the idea of monitoring animal populations, because that's exactly what's happening in Pokemon Go. You're you're out there working for Professor Willow. Uh, he wants you to catch a ton of these strange little animals, map where you found them, and then send them in to him for for study and definitely not to turn them into candy because that's yeah. very dark. Yeah, that's a happen. little bit creepy. <laughs> it's scientific study. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's all scientific. Anime. So GPS, do you guys know what it stands for? Global Positioning System? Yep, see, I'm, oh, thank yeah. goodness. I'm so glad you got that. I don't want to say what um, it might be. So GPS is Global Positioning System uh, and it's kind of become this really fundamental part of how we get around every day. So, I mean... You think about aeroplanes having to land at the right airport, uh, us just trying to navigate to a different part of town, even things like shipping routes and trucking routes and all kinds of different monitoring systems are all done via GPS. So GPS stands for Global Positioning System. It's kind of this idea that was developed as early as the 1960s, and it was the US Department Mm. of Defense. They kind of needed better ways of doing global positioning because... Mm. Back in the day, if you were going to um, figure out where you were relative to something else, you had to be able to see the something else. Um, and a lot of people, particularly in that sort of pre-GPS era, would depend on this idea of triangulation. So you'd see a tall landmark off in one direction, and you'd identify another tall landmark in a different direction. And using the power of trigonometry um, <laughs> or simple observation, you'd be able to ascertain where you were relative to those two points. And that's exactly what GPS is. So when you're playing Pokemon Go and your little person is running around the streets uh, of Canberra, it's because you're triangulating your location, but rather than using a tall landmark, you're using satellites. So GPS relies on there being GPS satellites up above Earth's atmosphere. There are currently about 31 of them orbiting Earth. Uh, And at any one time, your GPS device is talking to at least three of them. So that's what's going to do that triangulating, because... You can calculate your distance from those satellites relative to each other. That's based on a measurement of how long it takes for a signal to get to the satellite from your phone and then back. So we're looking at the speed of light kind of radio wave traveling thing. Hmm. And based on the position of those three satellites, you can almost perfectly these days distinguish where you are on the surface. So some of the best GPS systems at the moment can give you a range of about 15 meters which is crazy given the surface of the earth is quite large <laughs> and you're looking at being able to actually pinpoint your location to within sort of 15 meters or so. Um, and it relies on this, this satellite um, communication triangulation system. Wow. So one of the other really cool things that GPS kind of highlights yeah. is the idea of relativity. So you guys all know Einstein, right? 
Like, not yeah. personally, but... I've heard of him. You've heard of He's him? He's come up in conversation once or yeah, twice. Once yeah, once or twice. He did, some, yeah. he did some stuff back in the day. Like, you know, he was he was a hard worker and, um, <laughs> you know, smashed out some, some good theories. And one of those theories was this idea of relativity. The theory of relativity has a couple of different components to it. And we actually can observe these effects. So it's not just a, a thought experiment. This is actually something that people have tested and it's something that has to be factored in when people are calculating their position on Earth using these satellites. So if you've got a clock on a satellite and it's moving really fast, the time will be passing slower relative to people on Earth. Okay, Jason just winced. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so that, that's an effect that they've observed. So there was this experiment done um, quite a while ago. I think it was in the 70s. Yeah, so the Hafele-Keating experiment. And they actually tested the theory of relativity, this idea that a clock moving faster will actually tick slower. So they used a couple of atomic clocks. So these are like the most accurate clocks you can get. It's based on the vibrations of different atoms um, and it keeps time on that. So it's not like the battery's just going to run down a little bit and your your clock's going to lose time. (laughs) Um, So in October of 1971... um, a physicist and an astronomer, um, Joseph Hafile and Richard Keating, took four cesium beam atomic clocks, put them on commercial aeroplanes, and then flew them twice around the world. So they flew one, one of these planes twice eastward, and then they flew the other one twice westward. So you've got one plane that's going with the direction of the Earth and one that's going opposite it. And so when these clocks were all reunited back on Earth, they were found to read slightly different times. This is one of those times where you really hope that you've tagged the clocks properly before you <laughs> chuck them in the plane. Otherwise, you get them off and you're like, oh, there's a difference, but I have no idea what the difference is. This is the value of note keeping. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, this is just like Interstellar, man. <laughs> you know, when they go down to the tidal planet. Wait, you guys have seen Interstellar, right? Yeah. No, I haven't. Oh, gosh. Oh, spoilers. Yeah, okay, I can't give you spoilers then. That's all right. I, but no, I don't plan on watching it tomorrow or anything. Okay, they go down to a tidal planet, and they're all like, yeah, we need to be real quick here, mm. because, you know, time's going to pass really slow here, because we're close to a black hole. Right. And they go down there, and they're there for like, I don't know, an hour or two. They come back, and it's been like 40 years on the spaceship oh. from where they launched. And it's just like that short of distance. And apparently it's actually, that was actually kind of true. It's actually like scientifically sound. That's cool. One of the biggest discrepancies in Interstellar was the tides. Was the size of the tides wouldn't be that big or something like that. Okay. If they were that, they needed to be closer to the black hole. Hmm. Just as an aside. It's a very good film. You should go see it. Okay. I think they're screening it during National Science Week, which is coming up. Oh, there's a plug. (laughs) Which is something we're also going to be talking about extensively. Let's get that. Let's work that one in there. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's going to happen. Um, So back to the the special relativity. The rate of a clock ticking is always going to be greatest to a person who is at rest relative to the clock. So if you're sitting in a room next to a clock, you're going to observe it ticking at its normal speed. If you're in a rocket ship going 90% the speed of light and you're sitting next to a clock and you are at rest relative to that clock because you're both on the spaceship, then you'll see it ticking at its normal rate and that's fine. But if you are on Earth and someone else has put a clock on a space shuttle (laughs) and is flying it around the Earth a few times, the clock relative to you is going to be going slower. So when you get the clock back off the spaceship and look at it, less time will have passed 
in that fast-moving spacecraft than did on Earth. What I'm getting from this is time travel. Yeah, it's entirely time travel. Okay. So Loop is possible then? Oh, yeah. I mean, Looper, Interstellar. All right. All of these films. I'm I'm at at ease with this now. (laughs) So the people who were doing this experiment, they basically... So they flew one clock eastward around the world. So the one that was going eastward is going in the direction of Earth's rotation. So it has a greater velocity relative to the ground. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so it lost quite a lot of time relative to the people who were going to then compare the clocks back on the ground. Mm -hmm. The one that flew westward was flying against the Earth's rotation, so it was actually going slower relative to the people on the ground, and it gained time overall. Mm. So this is, like, not a a thought experiment. This is actually something that we can observe. And the effects of this are that if you have satellites above Earth's atmosphere and you're depending on the location of those satellites to triangulate your location on Earth if you want to go catch that Growlithe, (laughs) GPS systems have to take into account relativistic effects. So you'll actually be losing accuracy if you don't take into account the fact that time moves differently when you are moving fast. So I'm guessing there's probably not a lot of people who ever thought that here, Albert Einstein and a Growlithe <laughs> in the same sentence. Well, that is actually unified by like a proper theory. By the by the grand greatest theory, theory. Of, of relativity, special relativity. Yeah. And it's I mean this is this is non-trivial. So the the numbers I have here are that if you leave your GPS system without correcting for relativity, the offset that you will mm. acquire, like yeah. the inaccuracies you will acquire, would accumulate faster than 10 kilometers per day. Whoa. So this is the actual application of the theory of relativity in such a way that we are correcting our, basically everything we rely on for modern navigation from out by 10 kilometers every day to within three to 15 meters. That's incredible. Yeah. Cue the Pokemon Go haters saying, that's what we're using relativity for, Pokemon (laughs) Go. (laughs) But we're actually talking about the GPS application. And it's totally worth it, right? Yeah. We're going to go to a track. This is James Blake with one of his new songs um, featuring Bonnie Ver. Uh, it's called I Need a Forest Fire. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX, where today we are very excited about the phenomenon sweeping the globe. It is Pokemon Go chat time. We're talking about the science of Pokemon Go. We were just talking about GPS, the global positioning system that allows you to pinpoint the street corner upon which your executor um, is waiting for you to go and throw raspberries at it. And we're going to talk a little bit about battery power um, in a second. But first, uh, one of the other big exciting events that's taking place in Canberra quite soon is National Science Week. So National Science Week kicks off on the 13th of August. And one of the massive events that's taking place on the 13th that is quite dear to my heart, not because I am a scout, but because I am a scientist who likes tiny little joeys wearing tiny little lab coats. It's going to be so cute. The Psy Scouts event is taking place on the 13th. So this is an event where about 1,200 scouts are going to be coming through the chemistry department at ANU. That's a lot of scouts um, and and some guides. So this is going to be joeys all the way up to venturers and rovers. So I think we've got an age range of about 6 to 25. 1,200 
coming through in their lab coats and goggles to do some hands-on activities. Um, I was lucky enough to get to chat to a couple of the people involved in running this event. Uh, so Vance Lawrence is from the ANU and he's also a scout leader, uh, well, adventurer scout leader at the Southall Scout Group. And this is him talking a bit about the preparation that has to go into the Sci Scouts event coming up for National Science Week. We're trying to expose the whole range of youth in scouting and in the Girl Guides to a, a broader range of hands-on activities to spark their imagination, uh, give them an idea of what fun chemistry can be and where they can go with it. And, of course, in the award scheme in scouting, there are several um, badges, if you will, under the various award schemes at different ages where science and environment come strongly into what they do. There is a little bit of a bent towards the environment because that way we can combine both chemistry and the environmental emphasis of the scouting movement. But they'll be doing uh, blueprinting, which is blueprinting on both artistics... Uh, development and on photography, one of the earliest forms of photo reproduction there ever was, uh, hence the reason blueprints are part of the everyday lexicon now. They'll be getting lectures from various people in our uh, tutorial theatres upstairs on everything from tracking the movement of mankind across the globe via the chemistry of their teeth in archaeology uh, through to the chemistry of uh, what makes glow sticks work and how that can be used in areas outside of something like glow sticks. Uh, there will be food chemistry, so looking at health. They're, one of the uh, researchers from the biochemistry section of the RSC will be doing talks on the chemistry of the human body and what makes it up. So we're trying to go for a good wide range of activities. The talks are the biggest diversity. But aside from the talks, we've got liquid nitrogen ice cream, we've got fire chemistry, and fire safety is a big part of scouting as well. Mm. So we've got fire chemistry work. Um, we've got population health and, and uh, epidemiology coming over to the chemistry of sunscreens, both as talks and hands-on activities. So that's health and safety, again, a, a big important area in modern scouting. Mm. The in-lab activities and the for pure water purification and the analysis are unashamedly environmentally aimed, but once again, that is one of the big focuses of chemistry and finding a place where what is done on campus or has been done on campus meets what's in modern scouting is what we wanted to try and do. We've got a substantive number of volunteers from, outside, from out of the um, ANU's science students and science research students and staff uh, we also have volunteers, particularly for the morning session for the youth, that are coming out of the older sections of scouting, the venturers, which is the 15 to 18-year-olds in particular. Scouting itself, of course, is no stranger to organising large events. Look at any jamboree any day of the week. But we're also not a f new to the idea here at the ANU. We've run large events. Open day every year is quite substantial. It takes a lot of planning leading up to uh, the same goes with, we used to run the Peter Wovers lectures in Science Week and probably will be again next year. But yeah, normally we get information for these large events. We try and make sure that we've got as much detail as possible four or five months ahead so that by three months ahead we're planning on purchase, we're talking to suppliers, we're talking to venues and that sort of thing. 
Uh, the risk management has to be quite a substantial part of it these days, and given the fact that we will have six-year-old joeys and pre-junior guides in the laboratories making slime and making up their own blueprints, you have to look at how you modify the activities and do the proper risk management and mitigation for that. Happily, we've been able to, so I envisage an intense day, but a fun day, and hopefully all of the guides and scouts of varying ages and genders will come out of it having had a great time and thinking that chemistry might be something for them in the future. So that was Vance Lawrence, uh, both a, a passionate member of the ANU chemistry community and also a scout venturer leader uh, with the Southall Scout Group. Uh, we've also had a chat to Kate Lahan, who is from ACT Scouting, and uh, a couple of guest appearances from uh, none other than Adrian and Bridget, who are both Sea Scouts at the Lake Ginandera Scouting Group. Uh, so this is them talking about the importance of this event and what they're most excited about that's going to come up during that day. The idea of Sea Scouts has come about from last year we held an astronomy night up at Mount Stromlo. And we uh, just the idea of Scouts is about learning through learning by doing. So we're really fortunate here in the ACT to be near a whole bunch of wonderful institutions. So just giving those kids that opportunity to engage in some real science. So we've got over a thousand scouts and guides actually enrolled to come along to Sci Scouts, which is a very exciting. They're already all registered to come along. And so apart from getting to actually do the activities, they'll get to take some things away. There are going to be some giveaways. And there's an activity badge that we've actually been able to get for everybody. It's uh, got a really cool beaker on it. Um, And so they all get to have that um, embroidered badge to take away with them, which is a very exciting thing that scouts and guides like to have for their blanket. Scouts and Guides is a really exciting opportunity for kids to to complement what they do at school. They actually really get to get out there and do some hands-on activities, whether that's out during camping, uh, doing wide games, which are activities they do during their actual weekly activities. But just being able to like extend upon their actual formal learning at school, but with some exciting activities that help them to grow as, as people. So it's a really fun thing to watch them to to do that learning by doing so it's yeah. really fun it will be really good to just maybe hopefully get that light bulb moment for the kids so that they're like i could actually do the uh, science or technology career when i grow up i'm really looking forward to actually um doing the experiment and having the liquid nitrogen ice cream <sighs> Um, at SciScouts, I'm really looking forward to doing the liquid nitrogen ice cream and the, and the exploding flames activities. <laughs> um, I really like chemistry and geology. So that was Kate and Adrian and Bridget. And as you can see, they're obviously very excited about the liquid nitrogen ice cream component. So that event's taking place on the 13th of August uh, at the start of National Science Week. Uh, it's going to be a fantastic day, if a bit busy, but we're really looking forward to having all the scouts hanging out in our lovely chemistry building. So we're talking about the science of Pokemon Go. We've talked about GPS. Now we're going to talk about the bane of all Pokemon Go players' existence. Your battery's running out. No app has ever chewed up battery like Pokemon Go yeah. chews up battery. It's... It's just a sad state of affairs. 
But the science of batteries is something that is fascinating and really becoming a big deal as more and more of our technology becomes dependent less on the electrical mains and more on having portable sources of energy. So, Sian, I believe you know a little bit about the slightly gross history of the battery, something about a frog being dissected? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much what it is. So it came about in 1780 uh, when this guy called Galvani was dissecting a frog, which was, you know, hanging off this big brass hook. And he was, you know, dissecting it, cutting it apart with his iron scalpel. um, And when he touched its leg, its leg twitched. Um, Creepy. Yeah. (laughs) Obviously, he was a little bit freaked out about this. And he thought that this, you know, this twitch came from um, the actual leg itself. And he thought it was called animal electricity. Okay. But his mate, Volta, uh, who's also a scientist, he was like, nah, man, that's that's totally not what it is. I think it's the brass hook and the iron scalpel joined by a moist intermediary, which is, you know, the frog. <laughs> it was wet. There was water on it. Gross. You don't get that kind of poetry in modern science, do you? I don't you? think so. Oh, I've don't. never heard a frog referred to as a moist intermediate, Harry. <laughs> Not recently. Now I have. That's good. (laughs) So, so Volta then went on to look at this more and experimented. And in uh, 1791, rather, he published these results. And in 1800, he made the first real battery, which was called the voltaic pile. So I think people might have come across these or seen them in science demonstrations or things like that. It's it's a, a relatively simple little thing to set up. So it's kind of a stack of, I guess, coins or discs mm. of varying metals and then with a, an electrolyte between them. Is that kind of the, if you visualise the stack of coins, that's what I'm picturing? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. My understanding is that this is all based on this uh, kind of horrible chemical topic called redox. <laughs> Anyone who studied chemistry will have heard redox before. It's just a shortening of the words reduction and oxidation. All this comes down to, in simple terms, is the movement of electrons from one place to another. So when electrons move to an object, um, that object is reduced, right? So um, the metal, we, we term it as being reduced. If electrons move away from that metal, we say that uh, that metal is being oxidised. So one of the common sort of forms of oxidation people might see is if they've left their bike out in the rain for a while and it starts to rust, what's actually happening is an oxidation reaction with that iron. Now, because redox involves electrons moving from one place to another, that sounds kind of familiar. That sounds a little bit like an electric circuit. So as long as you have a medium through which those electrons can move and the chemistry is trying to tell the electrons to go from point A to point B. Like a frog. Like through a frog, right? Mm. So this frog in this case is called an electrolyte. It's something that allows the passage of electrons through it. And in passing electrons through this frog, we see its leg twitch because it's stimulating the muscles to contract and expand. And so what poor old Galvani thought was sort of this inherent magical animal electricity is actually just the passage of electrons through the frog. So we can exploit this by setting up a chemical reaction that is going to encourage electrons from one place to another and actually using that flow of electrons to power something the same way that any electrical circuit is powered. 
And that's kind of what's happening in the back of your mobile phone while you are constantly tapping at the screen trying to defeat the Firo at the gym on the corner. Mm. And that big flower pot gym near Uni Lodge, that is a very highly contested gym. Mm. <laughs> yeah, one day. Team Instinct. Um, <laughs> I think things are about to kick off kick in here. Off, yeah. um, so, so the kind of batteries that are in our phones are usually lithium-ion batteries. So lithium is a type of metal. And it's basically depending on the movement of electrons to and from lithium. So when you charge up your phone, you're basically resetting the chemical reaction so that it can take place over and over again, which is why batteries do tend to have a lifespan, because there's only so many times you can kind of reset this chemical reaction. Eventually, the metals will start to crystallize or corrode and the battery will stop being as effective. There's this group at MIT that have just recently come out with a solid state lithium oxygen battery which might very well change the way we play pokemon go because the lifespan you get from this particular material is greatly increased and that's because rather than you needing a wet frog to run your electrons across i'm just getting great images of people (laughs) playing pokemon go with a wet frog stuck on the back of their phone hey i mean try it and send us a tweet and let us know if it works because you know we're always looking for ways to optimize our gameplay exactly yeah. i don't know if it's necessarily environmentally friendly to be strapping a frog it's a actually it's more environmentally friendly than disposing the battery in your phone every two years that's true and that's why you always dispose your batteries in the battery disposal place because then they'll take the components and actually try and recycle them could properly. this be a way to control the kanto population Ooh. we might be tapping into something here <laughs> let's let's you know, well, put that upstairs for I mean, later. so let's compare the ideas, right? So Jason's million-dollar idea is let's strap cane toads to the back of our phone. Not saying strap, like that requires extra materials. I'm sure we can find a way to you just like, have insert to hold them. It, just hold right? it there. You're already holding your phone. That's true. Okay, just, so it's a to touch to conduct. Right? We'll compare the idea of holding a cane toad on the back of your phone as as the electrolyte for the passage of electrons mm. through the material, or this group at MIT who have developed this intricate glass system where they've got lithium and oxygen atoms positioned next to each other in like a molecular network. And when the electrons move from the lithium to the oxygen, I guess the oxidation state of that oxygen is going to change. So it's going to gain or lose electrons depending on whether you're charging or discharging the battery. But this is all happening in a solid rather than in a wet frog. So I should <laughs> clarify that in your in your current lithium-ion batteries, you do have... A, an electrolyte. So it's it's a wet layer, basically, that's going to allow the passage of those electrons. It's not a frog. So the Battelle Energy Alliance Professor of Nuclear Science and Engineering at MIT, Zhu Li, uh, postdoc Zhi Zhu and five others at MIT, uh, as well as some people out of the Peking University in China, they're the ones developing this new battery technology that could expand the lifespan of batteries. I mean, this is application for Pokemon Go. This is application for electric cars. Um, basically a way of storing solar energy, which is one of the big problems with renewables, is actually storing the energy that we collect for use later on. So it's a really exciting time to be looking at batteries. So we're going to go to a track now. It's called Don't Run Our Hearts Around by Black Mountain. We have a Black Mountain here in Canberra. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. That was Black Mountain with Don't Run Our Hearts Around. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on 2XX, your science on a Sunday with me, Eleanor. I'm in the studio with Jason and Sian, and we're talking about Pokemon Go. Another of these fantastic events that's taking place during National Science Week 
On the 13th of August, on the Saturday, if you head to the bus depot markets, there's just going to be science every direction you look. So the event is called Science in Action. Uh, I think it's running for the entire weekend. Uh, and like the list of things that are taking place is extensive. So one of the things that's very close to our hearts is collab, science meets art. Um, this is something that's being run by Lee Constable. She's going to be uh, curating collections of scientists who have been speaking to street artists about their work. Um, that's going to be taking place at Science in Action at the Bus Depot Markets in Kingston on the 13th of August. But another um, Art Meets Science event that's taking place is this thing called Duality. So this is a project that Dr. Dimitri Toleta from the Research School of Biology has been working on. Um, I was lucky enough to have a chat to him earlier in the week about how the project came about, uh, what his vision was for this particular pho photography project. Uh, so this is Dimitri explaining duality and why he is passionate about showing scientists as both researchers and humans. The duality project is a photographic project. I imagine just to be able to show to public that researchers are not only people in the lab, they have a life outside the life, but they are still the same person. Mm. So people in, in the lab, so researchers are not only a guy or a woman with a lab coat and doing some experiments and things that you can see on uh, NCI, so right. <laughs> it's not this kind of fantasy, we are more complex than that. Yeah. And, and so some people have very strong OP outside of the lab, so I wanted to put these, um, these pictures to, to show that to, to people. So I, I have different things, so the sports one was easiest to, uh, to take pictures with, and it was easy for people to, to, to see what it was, so I have cyclists, I have runner, uh, kickboxer, cheerleader, gymnast, so a lot of different people doing that as an OB and the other part is people have, having both activities like um, the director of my center is a researcher and um, the owner of uh, Binary in Canberra. Yeah, it, it was nice to, to, to be able to, to, to show that and, yeah. and to have all of these kind of variation. I'm a photographer because I'm a researcher. It's it, the, the way that I always see science and see um, the research that make me like the photography and want to do more photography, just to observe things and try to capture the moment. Um, but with this project, it's something a little bit new for me. It's to try to deliver a message where normally I only do pictures to show to everybody that it's very beautiful and share all of these very beautiful places to people. This time it's a little bit different. Researchers are not that boring and we are something else than yeah, just people in white and doing boring things in the lab or things that nobody can understand. So yeah, yeah a lot more complex than that. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. That was Dimitri Tolita from the Research School of Biology, who's running an event called Duality uh, at Science in Action coming up during National Science Week, 13th of August at the Kingston Bus Depot Markets. Go along, have a look at the photos that he's taken of scientists, both in their natural habitat 
Uh, so some people might think in a laboratory, but also doing one of the hobbies or passions that they have outside of the lab as well. So um, he's got cyclists and runners and I think a cheerleader. It's very exciting. So here on Fuzzy Logic, we're talking about the science of Pokemon Go. We've talked a bit about GPS, about battery life and how the, the app just absolutely demolishes batteries and, and you see sad children on street corners trying to attach cane toads to the back of their um, phones <laughs> to, to squeeze any, ele- any electricity out. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a, a pandemic. It's really a massive issue. But if we look at the actual, uh, I guess, message of Pokemon Go, it's really heavily environmental. It's about monitoring populations of strange monsters in your environment, uh, getting an idea of the number and, and the rarity of these different animals in your environment, and then sending this information to the all-powerful Professor Willow, who will uh, reward you with candy, which is basically how science is done in the real world. Um, yeah. I know Very a lot Pavlonian. of my research was definitely powered by ingesting a large amount oh, of candy exactly. during yeah. the day. If it's, if it's not bribery, it's not science, right? Yeah. But while we're using all our time sort of tracking these uh, digital or artificial populations of animals and monsters, uh, this kind of stuff actually happens with real animals all the time. Uh, populations of animals are monitored very closely by um, environmental scientists who are interested in things like migratory paths, so which directions mm-hmm. animals are actually moving through the world. Um, there's some examples of citizen science, Jason, that you were talking about. Yeah. So there's a group, it's a, it was a hashtag called BioBlitz, and they basically are looking to just basically find the distribution of like insects, plants, like flora and fauna around certain areas in America. And they saw this Pokemon Go thing happening. And they saw everyone getting out to the parks and walking around their neighborhoods. And they thought, oh, we can piggyback on this. So they just started it on Twitter. So utilizing social media perfectly saying, Instead of BioBlitz, do post a picture of a plant or an animal or an insect you don't recognize and just hashtag it with PokeBlitz and we'll identify it for you. And it's like, yeah, apparently it's been pretty successful. Like people are finding these weird moths that they've never seen. And the scientists who are curating it were like, oh, we didn't know they were there. That's kind of interesting. We didn't think they were in this pocket of the city. And it's kind of really exciting. But there are a few caveats with doing this kind of citizen Mm. science is the irregularity with which people will post to it. Mm. You don't get the exact times. You do get the exact locations because of GPS and relativity, Oh yeah, obviously, and if the batteries have stayed alive. <laughs> but, yeah, you don't get this kind of, you know, in science, in the scientific method, we like everything to be regular and precise and designed such that we are kind of fairly measuring or observing things. But with citizen science, there is that irregularity. Mm. And they're saying that is kind of a problem with when they're trying to get this information from people. Hmm. is they're not, how do you say, like, they can't be sure that, oh, this picture was taken at 11.09 when it was posted to us. Maybe it was taken the day before. Hmm. And there are all other kind of environmental conditions they don't know about. Yeah. But they could probably backtrack and stuff. So it relies on the people posting these images to give that information as well. I mean, it's one of the powers of citizen science is that you get this mass of data. A huge amount. As soon as you sort of outsource to the public, especially piggybacking on something like if you're out catching Pokemon and you see an interesting animal, not on your screen, but in the real world, send Mm. us a picture of it. Um, I mean, that's that's a a fantastic way of just raking in a heap of information. And so as you say, I guess there are problems with going through and making sure that you've sorted that information correctly. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, I mean, that's sort of the futuristic aspect of it. Um, but this kind of 
monitoring of animal populations has been happening for a very long time. So back in 1803, uh, there was a naturalist called John James Audubon, I think. Sure. Yeah. I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry, John James. Um, I'm sure you were a fantastic naturalist and someone will tweet the real pronunciation. Um, He basically wanted to know whether birds that were migrating each year, if they came back to the same place. So it's hard if you have a big flock of birds, they all kind of look the same. Um, And you get another flock of birds coming back the following spring or whatever. And it's kind of like, are they the same birds? Are they different birds? Is it just a coincidence that this particular species comes and congregates here? So he started tying string to the legs of these birds. He'd catch them, he'd essentially tag them. So modern tagging would involve little plastic or metal rings that would go around uh, the foot of a bird. Some birds are too big for that and have like a little metal tag um, attached to a feather on their wing, things like that, making them really easy to identify. And from that, he was then able to tell if the same population of birds had returned to the original spot. And so he actually was able to track the movement of different migratory animals. Um, And that's kind of the same sort of ideas as this citizen science, everyone keeping an eye out. And I think there have been a lot of um, potentially slightly humorous tweets, but along the lines of, hey, Pokemon Go players, you know that you're basically just bird watchers but, like, you're not quite there yet. Yeah, you're kind of amateur bird watching. Yeah. And, I mean, I imagine once people have caught the... You can only get 146 Pokemon at the moment, can't you? Yeah, something around that. Yeah. I'm sure once people have uh, churned through all of those goals and they've they've reached that, they might start looking at birds because, I mean, it's basically the same thing, right? Yeah. Possibly looking at birds is a little bit more exciting because yeah. they're actually there. Oh, it'd be, it'd be more challenging because the birds don't inherently have a GPS tag on them that allows you to track them. That's true. Although RFID technology and mm-hmm. GPS tagging does happen with different populations really? of animals. Mm-hmm. So one of the examples is um, manatees. So down the coast of the US, there's like this an endangered population of Florida manatees. Um, so they need protection, obviously. Mm. Um, it's quite difficult to protect an animal where you, when you don't know where it is. You mm. don't know which pathways it needs to be followed and, and protected along. And so they've actually uh, gone to the process of doing radio tracking on these manatees. They've put radio tags onto the manatees and have observed them travel from Florida to Rhode Island um, as they migrate which basically gives the scientists the information they need to set up protection along that migratory path. So we're actually using that sort of same monitoring technology to preserve populations of, populations of endangered species. That's really interesting. Yeah. I think, I think it would be interesting to see if they can apply it to other organisms that are potentially more widespread and mm. kind of things like... For me, personal love, killer whales, oh. you know, in the light of climate change to tell you that they're like moving into new kind of ecosystems where they weren't there before. And they're okay. kind of now disrupting kind of food webs, especially like on um, the Arctic with the receding of the polar ice caps. They're now moving in there and they're attacking narwhals, the oh. unicorns of the sea, yeah. <laughs> which is actually a food source the polar bears relied on. So that's caused the polar bears to move around and they're kind of shifting all these animal distributions. And I think yeah. that's something that citizen science could feed into is like if people are ever in the arctic circle on their sunday walk (laughs) catching their pokemon you know they could observe and like send in and like they could actually figure out how these things have been redistributed globally yeah that's pretty exciting i mean it it definitely plays into that idea of 
you know, if we can monitor where these populations are, we mm. can um, take extra efforts to ensure that the populations remain stable and particularly exactly. up in that sort of region where there is this fight for food um, yeah. and, and for ice shelf space because they're all crumbling into the ocean. Um, oh. It's definitely definitely problematic. Um, one of the other really cool ones is people have used this radio tagging to figure out how far um, Arctic terns can fly, so the really, really? big Arctic birds, um, and they just they just go and go and go. So there was um, this one fellow. Um, oh, the bird doesn't have a name. I was going. Okay, let's call him. What's a good bird name? Lewis. Let's call him Lewis. Lewis. He's Lewis. <laughs> um, so this this big Arctic tern who was caught in July of 1953 um, and was ringed. So you know the the equivalent of marking down where you caught your Pokemon and then releasing it back into the wild. Um, it was re-trapped again in July of 2003. So it was at least 55 years old. Um, and they basically calculated the number of migration trips that would be made in a 55-year bird lifespan and figured out that this Arctic tern, Lewis, had flown a minimum of 1 million kilometres just of migration. Like, that doesn't include going out to catch fish and you know, doing a little bit of a jaunt around. Imagine how many eggs he could have hatched in Pokemon Go. A million <laughs> migrated kilometers. That's a lot of that's a lot of ten K eggs. That's a lot so of ten K eggs. Now you just need to get your phone and attach it to the Arctic turn. Alright, All right. so what we've learned is you need to first of all take into account relativistic effects. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Strap a cane toad to the back of your phone so that it's yes. Through the power of redox reactions and electrolytes, um, <laughs> powers your phone for longer. Mm. Um, or you need to invest in a in a lithium oxygen battery from MIT. Might be the more sensible. Yeah, option. maybe. And then strap your phone to an Arctic turn mm. so that it does a million kilometres of egg hatching for you. Well, I know what I'm doing for the rest of the weekend. <laughs> well, I hope that. Everyone has found this educational. We've definitely had a lot of fun in the studio. Yeah. Um, if you are out playing Pokemon Go, be careful. Keep your eyes on on the cars as well as on your Pokemon. Yeah. Um, and just remember that when you are strolling around playing Pokemon Go, you are not only paying homage to Einstein and his theory of relativity, but also to incredible scientists who have pioneered battery technology. And mm. while you're out catching Pokemon, keep an eye out for any interesting animal or insect or plant species that you take a take a liking to and hashtag them with Pokeblitz and send them to the send them to the people who are collecting citizen science data. Well my name's Eleanor. I've been in the studio today with Jason. Hello. Goodbye. <laughs> and Go Sian. Thanks very much. Team Instinct. Team um, Instinct. We'll be back with <laughs> Okay, that's that's a good reveal to go out on. Got a nice equal representation of Pokey teams. Um, Unbelievable. Tune in next week for more Fuzzy Logic Science. Make sure you get to some National Science Week events. Um, head out on the 13th of August to Science in Action. See what's taking place at the Kingston Bus Depot Markets. And yeah, keep keep abreast of what's going on during Nat Sci Week because there's amazing events taking place all week, all week starting from the 13th. Um, thanks for joining us. See you later.